The Such Nerds podcast was started as a platform to journey through the Isaac Asimov Foundation series. It was also started as a way for the hosts to stay connected during COVID. You're about to listen to our first episode. The best way to appreciate this episode and our podcast in general is to read the Isaac Asimov Foundation series along with us and pace your listening with your reading just to make sure we don't ruin any surprises for you. We recorded our episodes as we made our way through the reading, so we discover the story as we go, and don't bring any foregone conclusions to the discussion. If you've already read Foundation, please enjoy a walk down memory lane with us, and a few diversions into interesting or humorous asides inspired by our reading. If you're looking for less of a play-by-play through the story and more of a general summary discussion about the book, please look for our season finale episodes where we go back and look at the book in its entirety and talk about the big takeaways. Please keep in mind that this is our first foray into the podcasting universe, and as such you will notice the sound quality and editing get better after the first episode. We hope you can forgive us our imperfections as we learn and grow through the seasons of this podcast. In whichever way you choose to listen, we hope you enjoy. Such Nerds, and this is episode one of our podcast discussion of the Isaac Asimov classic epic sci-fi cornerstone, the Foundation novels. Uh, Welcome to our listener, and hopefully someday I'll be able to pluralize that. Uh, The subject of today's discussion is part one, uh, the Psycho Historians. Before we get into introductions, I'll just warn the listener that we are going to totally spoil the entire section. We're going to go into some details, so um, if you want to read the book first, like definitely stop listening and go do that, but otherwise, go for it. Intros. So, Peter, do you want to kick it off? Uh, I'm Peter, uh, and I am out of Long Island, New York. I am doing this podcast because... Jason asked me to, but mostly I uh, I enjoy sci-fi, and I've never read the series, so this will be fun. Thank you, Peter. How about how about you, Russ? I'm Russ, coming to you from Montclair, New Jersey. I have been interested in sci-fi fantasy, everything from Lord of the Rings to Dune to some more Merlin-y style stuff, sort of Shannara. Big fan of '80s synthesizer music and you know obviously judge dread was a turning point in my life so i feel like i'm prepared for any futuristic dystopia utopia talk that we have yeah thanks for that russ i am uh, i am jason and coming to you out of hartford connecticut Uh, i actually have asked uh, russ and peter to read this with me because i'm scared to read it by myself that's not true 
I actually am looking forward to reading it. I was recommended the Foundation series from somebody after I mentioned how much I loved the uh, the Dune epic was really, which was really my foray into sci-fi, and since has become a little bit of an obsession. Yeah, so basically I strong-armed them into doing this with me and then slyly turned it into a uh, podcasting initiative here. I still have the um, bruises on my wrist. I know, I know. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, in any case, looking forward to it. And I'll just do a quick rundown of the section that we're, that we're looking at here, the part one uh, about the psycho-historians. So basically, there's uh, there's a handful of characters. Uh, it starts out with the uh, Gal Dornick. He travels to the planet Trantor, which is the center of the galaxy and the place where the Emperor uh, resides, to work for a famous mathematician named Harry Selden. It turns out that when he gets there, the story is not as he expected. Harry Selden has predicted the fall of the Empire within 300 years and as a result, is in hot water with the Emperor. He ultimately goes on trial the next day after Gal Dornick arrives, and the trial is really a, more of a hearing, ending with a negotiation between Harry Selden and the Emperor for him to be exiled to Terminus, which is a planet at the edge of the galaxy, uh, where he will undertake his encyclopedia. And the idea of the encyclopedia is that it will collect all the knowledge and protect humanity from an extended dark ages after the fall of the empire from 30,000 years of dark ages down to something significantly less. And uh, Peter, it sounds like you have kind of a good handle and good notes on getting us going there. So yeah, I'm happy to kick it off from here. Chapter one, Gal, our, uh, who seems to be our main point of view character, he shows up Sounds like he grew up in kind of a backwater town of Synax. He's super pumped to be in Trantor. Trantor is also the galactic hub of the entire bureaucracy. And the entire planet is a city. It's something like 20 stories underground and then 60 stories above ground. It's uh, a mile deep. They refer to it as an iceberg. Nine-tenths of the city is underground, and then 500 feet is that observing tower. And then they're spanned out underneath the ocean as well. Yeah, so the uh, the only green space on the whole planet is the Emperor's Palace. So that gives you kind of a nice setting. But when he shows up in Chapter 1, it's he essentially shows up in a giant airport. The airport's so big that he can't see from end to end without that haze uh, that you can only get in large buildings or like airplane hangars. It's almost like you can see the curvature of the earth <laughs> before you can see the other side of the wall. But he's walking around and he's in awe of everything he's seeing. And, and my first reaction was that this guy's walking slack jawed around an airport. Like, is he going to get pickpocketed? How is he not going to get like victim to a like a fake taxi scheme or, you know, someone could be holding up a sign that says, uh, mathematicians or something like that. I always draw to a lot of the more theatrical ties because I feel like they pull from books like this. But movies like Blade Runner, Judge Dredd, and Total Recall, you, you always see the intro where these flying cars or shuttles go into just this massive city and everything is encased within the city and there's nothing beyond the city limits. You know, like nobody goes outside the city limits because that's where either like life can't exist or that's where the renegades are. 
It's like Neuromancer. It has a lot of that similar kind of context. Like essentially uh, Boston to Atlanta becomes the Boston Atlantic Metroplex, also known as the Sprawl. Basically, nobody worthwhile lives outside the Sprawl. Right. Yeah, but this is like the entire, this is the whole planet. I I almost had this vision of like Cybertron. It's almost like there's no natural, visible planet from anywhere around the atmosphere of this planet. So in chapter two, like he goes on and I guess he, he gets a cab, but he goes to the top of this hotel. Apparently all the hotels are good. If you ask one of the front desk people at the mega airport and he wants to go to the top of the building. And so he goes to the top of the building like nobody's up there. There's nobody up there. And he runs into a random man and the random man starts talking to him. And he's like, oh, you must not be from around here. He's you know, Gal says, like, well, how did you know that? And he goes, because people who live here don't come up here. They spend so much of their lives in these buildings that they basically have, like, agoraphobia and are afraid to go outside and afraid to see the sunlight. And so the implication is because of this massive bureaucracy where everyone is super specialized to handle one task for the whole galaxy, it seems, they live their entire lives inside. Like, children might they they set, talk about how the children take field trips to go outside and they do it like once a year starting at fifth grade or something like that. And the children are always terrified. And they're like freaking out. And it's like, uh, yeah, it's like a conditioning that they make them go through so that they can in adulthood, if they have to, you know, go outside of the, uh, the infrastructure, they can. But it's, it, I get the impression of like mole people, right? Yeah. Well, let's, 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 did we preface this when the book was written? Did you mention that? Or are you assuming we, that we did not? Our we, listeners... can, we can go into that. I think that's actually a good aside. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so we agreed uh, from the beginning that we were going to read the books in order of publish date. And so this one was published in 1951 for the first time uh, right. as a book. However, the stories were written earlier in, you know, in parts. So, yeah, so this is from 1951. So it's like, you know, the the stories themselves were written like during the war or at the tail end of the war. Um, and uh, and this was the transistor like, like in heavy development at that point? Yeah, I don't like, even know. Maybe. Maybe yeah. barely. It's like it was like 60s. Yeah. So... Yeah, so the whole concept of, like, things on paper and, like, I think they talk about, the, you know, they have hyperspace technology, but the, um, like, the passenger management system just seems like very 1960s, 1950s technology. It's not like today where we have, like, digital tickets on your phone or something like that. It's very manual and interesting to see that context. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that, you know, we've, we talked about a little bit getting ready for today is that, there's a certain generosity that you have to approach this writing with because you have to consider how long before today it was written and kind of let it slide that he couldn't predict 50 years of progress, let alone what this book is founded on with like thousands and thousands of years into the future. We find out in chapter three, which is when we actually visit the sunroom, Gal goes upstairs, he meets this guy, Mr. Gerald, who was tells them all about the school children who come visit and how odd it is that Gal's up there. And we also find out that Harry Selden has a, another name, 
they call him Raven Selden. I thought it was uh, interesting and instantly made me think of Game of Thrones with the three-eyed raven, which uh, has is also a uh, like a prescient character. Um, and they actually says he goes, they call him Raven slang. You know, he keeps predicting disaster. And Gal, you know, doesn't know anything about it because Gal is our our slack-jawed, wide-eyed window into this this universe. Doesn't seem to have any idea what's going on. But that doesn't last for long because he he feels like slightly uncomfortable, right? And bows out of the conversation to go down to his hotel room. And then Harry Seldon's waiting for him in his hotel room because he's like this uh, calculator of the future probabilities, right? So he's predicting already that his planned encounter the following day may be at risk. And so he's jumping the gun and meeting him in his room to show him exactly what that guy was talking about right and this is where we find out that um gerald is a member of the commission of public safety which essentially seems like it's the emperor's secret police right yeah so like a lot of these common concepts of today's autocratic or bureaucratic behaviors right perpetuating tens of thousands of years and feudal societies still alive and well in the future yeah. construct of the galaxy yeah, I, you know, I, it, one of the things that struck me when I found out that there was an emperor, I was like, well, that's got to be largely a figurehead. It's not like that person would have any real decision-making ability in the minutia of how the whole universe is run. He would have to have lieutenants and lieutenants under those guys and so on and so on. And the actual practicality of managing entire galaxy from one planet just doesn't seem like it would be very efficient. I think you would end up with something like colonialism where, yeah, you've got like the motherland who thinks that they have a good grasp of what's going on. But then when it, when you actually get down to like the colonial level or the, the, the planetary level, there's something much different going on with who's in charge there and because they're closer to the situation, they wield power a much freer way. I would use the word distributed, right? Distributed power. Sure. Yeah. That works for me. I, and I think of like Earth, right? So we're, we're only one planet and we can't really kind of get behind a single leader. Even even continents are, are divided up into multiple, you know, distributed authorities, right? So right. this whole concept of like a universal emperor is, is just like so fanciful. I mean, the, the raw amount of tyranny you would need to keep uh, a society <laughs> in check like that with so many layers to it. It would, it would I don't know, it just seems not sustainable. And apparently it's not. That's why it's going to crumble. Right. And that's why it's going to crumble. Exactly. And these themes run through Star Wars, Dune, galactic emperors, overseeing planets, galaxies. But you need to have special powers in Dune and Star Wars. It doesn't come without the Force or prescience or, you know, the like spice. some other... The spice, exactly. There's always this kind of additional capability of those people that puts them above the normal human, which makes him almost more of a godhead than an emperor, right? After he bumps into Harry in his hotel room, he gets the lowdown on the prediction, and basically it's kind of a, uh, a chain of events that I think Harry is expecting, where the very next morning, Gal's interrogated on what Harry said to him. They already know what he said to him, but they interrogate him anyway. And it goes in front of a like a non 
jury hearing, right? It's basically a hearing in front of the council without necessarily following due process, which is interesting in a giant bureaucracy that they have this special hearing where they just grill both of them, right, on the details of this doomsday prediction. Yeah, mostly Dr. Self. And uh, again, also like a setup for the follow-on chapter, which is really kind of the crooks, which is the, the agreement to be exiled rather than, I guess, be executed for Harry and his, you know, 100,000 plus people that are working on his galactic encyclopedia. Have we adequately described what psychohistory is for our audience? Um, no, but we can certainly give it a try. I think that's an important idea, like a, a statistical model that predicts right. the future. And they don't go into great detail, I think probably on purpose, right? Because you'd have to create something that really did that to be able to describe it in detail. So it's more imagining that, you know, this is beyond our comprehension because it doesn't exist yet. But this is the magic of our work. That's the crux of it. It's not magic. This is like a pure academic science, right? This this psychohistory. There's no special, he's not, you know, taking some substance that enhances his ability to see these calculations. So the point I want to make with this <laughs> is that the basis is not just like random parameters. It's like Parameters come from human behavior. The, the subject or the people or the group of people that is being analyzed by this science can't know the course of action ahead of them. Because if they have foreknowledge of that course of action, then they have a different variable in their natural human decision-making to change the way they behave. The irony of that is that Harry Seldon is part of this whole activity around trying to change the future by knowing the path. So it's, you know, it kind of garbles that idea of the kind of the pure science of studying a mob and their reaction to a scenario versus having influencers in the mob directing people to do certain things because they know the path of the result of the actions of the mob based on getting them out to do certain things at certain points. He's bending the science towards his will based on his level of expertise in the field, I guess. So he's like a super mathematician. He's like a super mathematician, and he's starting to now influence his subject of study, if you will. A couple of things that I thought was interesting about this kind of like mock trial was that we find out that the emperor really isn't in charge, that there's a, actually like a family leader who is in charge. He's the actual acting emperor, even though they don't call him the emperor, which I thought was um, a good strategy to avoid things like assassination. Ling Chen, he's, head of, he's like the head chair of the commissioners. How many cups of coffee do you think you know, Harry Seldon had to consume to figure out the statistical model to predict the future of humanity? Like, are we, are we talking like hundreds of thousands of gallons or you think he like crushed it in one night? Like how long do you think it took? I would say at least two pots, at least two pots. Like you consume two pots of coffee before like 11 o'clock, Jason. I have to consume two pots of coffee just to remember my password to log into my work computer. Yeah. I think, uh, he also can, you know, delegate. He has like a team of mathematicians already, right? Even though he's hiring Gaul, it's, Gaul's not the only other mathematician in the universe. So I'm assuming that it's not necessarily as simple as him just whipping out a calculation in a 30 minutes or something and walking Gaul through. There's got to be a lot more behind that that led him to that conclusion. 
was there any other like elements of the story itself that I thought it was interesting that Dr. Selden he straight up says that there's no there's no ending the fall. You can't revert the empire from failing at this point. And basically he's accused of, of blasphemy and, and public endangerment and whatnot during his trial. And he says his goal is to basically shorten the length of um, of the period of darkness. And they had a very specific term for this, which was called the interregnum. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because I think this is the, the earliest work I've heard that term in or seen that term in. And uh, George R. R. Martin, his whole basically career before he really wrote Game of Thrones, he did space operas basically and, and space short stories. And the majority of these stories take place during something or immediately after something called the interregnum. So there's a basically a universe-wide fight between three different species. As a result, interplanetary space travel breaks down because this this war lasts a thousand years or something like that. And so all these little pockets of humanity get cast into darkness and they lose touch with like the larger universe and they have to figure out how to adapt and survive with these like either no technology because like, you know, the starships crash or whatever, or with very limited technology, or they might have the whole repository of knowledge, but not the resources to make them work. And one of the theories around the Game of Thrones story is that uh, Planetos, which is where the whole story takes place, is actually a planet in an in interregnum because there's enough little seeds around where you see various like oddities that you could be like yeah that's one way to describe like a crashed spaceship or like a, a a type of material you'd never seen before and so this idea of like an interregnum of there being like an inner uh, a galactic wide dark ages like a new dark ages is um that seed is planted in the story and that's the first time i've ever seen that i got real excited about that obviously and that's the whole premise right of of his uh of his efforts is right. They, like the, the dark ages will come. And so we're going to combat that, uh, by writing a giant encyclopedia so that people can find the knowledge in the future and rebuild the empire. So it's this whole you distribute you know, this massive paper encyclopedia. Yeah. I mean, they don't say paper, but it's, you know, the whole concept of like, publishing a concentrated collection of information is very, you know, it's very 1950s, like encyclopedia salesman door to door kind of. They say by the time Trantor falls, it will be complete and copies will exist in every major library in the galaxy. Yeah. It's just one library per planet though. So good luck guys. Right. <laughs> but it's a reference material, so you can't check it out. That's a, that's a thing. When I see like the fall of, or the way that movies or other stories talk about the fall of something, it, it, I'm always trying to find like where do they pick that up from? Is that is that like a World War II thing? You know, did, did World War II really spark a lot of these ideas where you know people saw a lot of civilizations or a lot of cultures, a lot of locations that were completely wiped out and had to restart? And what came afterwards? Was it good? Was it bad? 
you know, and I'm always curious to see, you know, books, especially this written in 1951, a world war, a second world war had happened within this guy's lifetime, you know, how does that impact the way that he writes about futures? And, and it always just seems like war is such a central theme in all these books. It's like everything is based around war. Well, I mean, do we think that war is what's going to happen here? It just seems like a societal collapse based off of infighting, not necessarily like a galactic like revolution, right? It's, it seems it seems like he talks about that the fall is because of the wars that will ensue because of the frailty of the the of Trantor is you know they talk about the, how delicate it is because it relies so heavily on everybody else but yet that is the central location of power yeah it'll it's be, constantly getting invaded is what he's right it'll constantly be the center of wars and thus would bring bring a collapse but I so when when we talk about this my brain immediately goes to who's copied this idea. And I know we talked like Star Wars and, um, you know, there's like Star Trek and all these other things, but it's, it's really interesting to see the parallels along the way or like, Hey, you know, some, this was a really cool movie. Like, where did they get that inspiration from? Well, they got it from Dune. All right. Well, where'd Frank Herbert get his from? Well, maybe he read a couple of Isaac Asimov's or maybe he read, you know, something earlier that brought him, you know, to that point. I or maybe, maybe, there was a time just by I'm just saying there's a chance that before World War Two, there may have been an empire that fell at some point, like maybe one or maybe, you know, there was a war before World War Two that happened, like maybe at least one. Wait, wait, wait. Do you think that there was a first world war before the second world war? I'm just guessing. I mean, like I'm all I'm saying is that it's possible that there were other potential influences ahead of World War II that meant something to people who did things after World War II. So, so are you saying that World War II does not have that large of an impact to a book that was written immediately following the war? <laughs> um, I'm not saying that it doesn't have a large impact, but I'm saying that it is also at the tail end of a much longer history than the four years that consumed America in the war, right? I wouldn't say just America. I would say, well, I'm, he, he wrote it in America. I'm, I'm just trying to look from his point of view. Like it wasn't like, um, you know, Rome wasn't famous for, you know, overextending their reach, becoming decadent and falling, you know, at the hands of more ambitious uh, actors. Right. And so this whole concept of like, an empire kind of getting bloated and getting over-specialized. Yeah, I'm sure. Like Napoleon, Alexander, like, you know, there's there's obviously, I'm, you know, yes, there's themes of that, but it feels, sometimes it feels like, especially the technology that follows World War II, seems much more spacey. Like it hits so many more, you know, everything is like rockets and much more air flight than... You know, like, I guess the Greek and Roman struggles of the actual Republic and Senate in the way that, you know, like I see that in Star Wars, like the way that they have the Republic set up and the way that the Senate is set up, like, oh, okay, that feels like incredibly Roman, yet they specified it. Right. And any random Jar Jar can walk in and propose uh, life-altering legislation. Right. right. <laughs> Peter, I thought we were going to keep it clean, man. Now, don't get me talking about Jar Jar. Listen, that duck bunny. I know. <laughs> the, the, just the, the worst creation Star Wars ever could have done. 
you got to take the good with the bad. I'm not like a Star Wars fan per se. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't turn it off if it was on, but. Have we just I mean, lost our one listener because of that, Jay? <laughs> Thanks, Jason. <laughs> but I think there's better. What I'm saying is there's, that's why we're reading this and we're not reading just a bunch of, you know, we're not rereading the novels that reflect the, you know, the original three Star Wars movies. This is something beyond that. I'm, I'm Clearly, you, you don't it's like, it's like I'm series. saying. It's, it's, it's like not I'm the original saying. three. It's original four, five, and six. Well, that's what I'm saying. The original three, as in the count of three. I just hope our listeners are going to respect you for that. That's all. Russell, I uh, I know that you're a child because you consider there to be more than three Star Wars movies. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's past your bedtime. It was a journey, Russ. It was a journey for uh, Lucas. You know, it was he kind of changed the plane as he was flying it. It just coming coming from the guy who is not into Star Wars. But I'm saying that you know it's like it's a different thing, right? We're reading a collection of short stories that stacked on top of each other to build this kind of epic story. So I understand. It's uh, it's coming from a different place. All I'm saying, it's like I'm saying, (laughs) I just want everybody to know that the Empire Strikes Back was listed as Episode Five. Yeah, I know. I yeah. just want everyone to know that. Everybody knows right. that, Russ. Everybody knows that. Okay. Yeah. So when they came up with that naming nomenclature, after it doesn't the listen. First one. Right. Semantics. We're getting, you know, we're, yeah. we're getting to the weeds on this. The fourth movie was not originally the fourth movie. Right? Exactly. It was, it was originally just that movie. It was a a single movie with no sequel forthcoming. And then, as it gained commercial success, Lucas built the plane as he flew it and turned it into this whole empire, not to overuse the pun. Whereas, not to use another pun, but I'll use it anyway, you know, the part of the, uh, the kind of the aura around the whole foundation thing is that it is foundational in, uh, in the general world of sci-fi, right? Because sci-fi really blossomed after World War II because a lot of this technology, you're right, a lot of this technology became reality, like, you know, jet engines, atomic power right this stuff happened like that over world war ii so yeah so this idea of oh we could be flying into space it became more tangible and 10 years later they were landed on the moon right so it was this whole you know momentum that it had at the time and i think it did influence i'm not trying to say that world war ii didn't have an influence getting off our star wars tangent um a couple other ideas that have been introduced in other works, like the uh, there must be some kind of form of instantaneous communication, right? There's no like satellite lag, lag yeah. Yeah. From, from world to world. If you have a centralized administrative hub slash building, um, that the the one that's that's in a lot of different works. Um, the one that comes to mind is Ender's Game. They have the the concept of the Ansible, yeah. which uh, it somehow harnesses the, I don't know, the, the subspace wires that connect everything in the universe to allow for instantaneous communication, yeah. which would absolutely be essential. Um, we haven't really, we, we've touched lightly on the concept of hyperspace because um, that's how Gal arrives. Um, and obviously, if you're transporting 100,000 people to a remote planet in the galaxy, that's you know, something that's going to be required. 
uh, unless you have colony ships. Um, and uh, I'm curious to see how Dr. Selden's going to run this planet. Is he going to rule with like an iron fist? Yeah, don't forget at the end, he predicts his own demise within a very short time period. Oh, I missed um, that. Yeah, yeah, it's like the last page of this section. He basically says... Oh, he says, like, yeah, after yeah, you die. Yeah, it's literally like the last thing. He says, I am finished under his breath because he knows he's on his last legs. Yeah, he says his doctors tell have told him he cannot live longer than a year or two. Interesting. But to go back to the like instantaneous communication, they do talk about at one point uh, that Gaul had never seen Trantor, and then he clarifies, actually, he's never seen it in person, but he has seen it on the hyper video. So I'm imagining that the mechanism that traverses space in the hyperspace realm, they've managed to capitalize on that technology to just send video signals or whatever the case may be. So, uh, so yeah, so is Gal going to rule with an iron fist? Because he's obviously being set up as the uh, heir apparent. I don't know. There's, a, there's only one way to find out, guys. Uh, a little teaser, part two, Encyclopedists, which reflects the, uh, the people that currently work for Harry Selden to build this galactic encyclopedia, who are all being exiled. It's not just Harry that's going to, we should clarify, that's going to Terminus at the end of the galaxy. His entire entourage of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and their families, um, and I'm not sure if I got that number exactly right, but it's a large number of people, are all going to Terminus to be exiled from the general galactic empire. That feels like a significant number of people to volunteer to be uh, exiled at one time. Like, did he have to convince every single person individually, like by showing them the statistical analysis like Gal? I don't know. I don't know, but, uh, you know, the way the guy on the, on the observation deck talks about him, he talks about him as having, you know, convinced all these people to be his followers, if you will, like almost like a cult following. Yeah. So they must be believers if they're willing to traverse the universe to an uninhabited planet on the edge of the galaxy. All right, boy. All right, gentlemen, call it a night. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us here for episode one of the Such Nerds podcast, talking about Isaac Asimov's foundation, the first part of the first book, The Psychohistorians. You can always find us at www.suchnerds.com. Have a good one now.